Thank you, John. Bet you can't guess where he's from. Go ahead and let it down, guys. A couple of months ago, I was in contact with Pat Sylvia. Pat used to be a member of our church here. She uh, is in Sacramento with our Religious Liberty Agency in Sacramento. And uh, she was wanting to know, who would you like to have as a guest speaker to come to talk about religious liberty? And I said, well, who would you have in mind? She gave me a long list, some of the names I'd never heard before, some of them I've, we've had be here before. I says, well, I'd like to have someone new and uh, who hasn't preached here and uh, something a little different. She quickly said, well, you need Dr. Fred. And uh, I said, Dr. Fred, who's that? He says, well, Dr. Fred Bischoff would be excellent to be able to have. And she says, let me check to see if, if he's available. Well, she emailed him and got back with me and said, could come the first Sabbath in, in March. And I said, great, let's just have him come. So we've been in contact, and he's here today uh, to be able to share with us. There are some of you out here that already know Fred and uh, have been greeting him as he came uh, this morning. And uh, he's got everything set up with uh, his PowerPoint up front here. And I know the Lord is going to bless us. Now, I want you to also keep in mind that it's still not too late to be able to give to Religious Liberty, although the Religious Liberty offering was back in January. Um, You can still give at some point. We just make out a, a check and put it in the tithe envelope at some point. You don't have to do it today. You can put it in next week and then just write religious liberty on it because it does go to a worthy cause. So, Fred, we welcome you to our pulpit today and may the Lord bless you. It's a privilege to worship with you this morning. I pray that as we consider our topic at hand, that We can understand afresh the importance of religious liberty and why as a people, not only American, but Seventh-day Adventists, we have a long history of religious liberty and it is part of the mission to which we've been called. Perhaps as a result of our study together today, we can understand that better. I'd like to look today at our topic from both a biblical and a historical perspective. I'd like to consider some of the core concepts that we're going to be looking at from Scripture and the practical implications. I'd like to consider, based as you probably can assume on our Scripture reading so far, Jesus' formula for freedom. Freedom that we see in the gospel, the life of Christ, liberty in history, and lastly, some observations about our own country of America. It's a long list, even though it's only four, and we'll only be able to touch briefly on some of these things. To start out with, I'd like to consider what freedom looked like in Jesus' day. I don't know whether you've tried to imagine what it would be like to live back when he was here on earth as a human being. 
First of all, we see clearly that massacres were taking place in his day. And in fact, his, his birth story is wrapped up with one of those from Matthew 2, verse 16. You well remember the story of Herod, the king, being threatened by these strangers from the east who came searching for a baby king. And when he couldn't find out which baby that was, he killed them all. Massacres at the very beginning of Jesus' life. You recall also in Luke 13, people coming to Jesus and saying, did you hear about the people who were worshiping and Pilate mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices? We would call them perhaps today in, in our modern lingo, extrajudicial killings. Killings outside of the rule of law. We also see in Jesus' day what we would call Roman oppression or arbitrary compulsions. You recall in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, whoever compels you to go one mile, what are you to do? You're to go two miles. Speaking specifically of the Roman soldiers who had the right to have anybody that they saw carry their burdens for them at least one mile. Persecutions. We could call this attempted murder due to religious intolerance. Uh, We find that right in the passage that we were considering earlier, John chapter 8. At the end of the passage there where uh, Jesus was talking with with the Jews, and we really need to thank John for recording these dialogues. These are amazing back-and-forth dialogues that we have in the Gospels. The Gospel of John particularly seems to be good at that. At the end of the chapter, it says very plainly, they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They weren't just trying to drive him away. In their day, picking up stones and throwing, there was clearly intent to murder. How much was Jesus targeted during his lifetime? I don't know whether you ever considered these texts. Take some time just looking at them with me through the Gospel of John, starting back there in chapter 5, verse 16. John 5, 16, it says, For this reason, Jesus had just healed someone. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Verse 18 It got even worse because of his response verbally, connecting himself with the Father. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. John 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Verse 19, Jesus confronts them. Do not Moses, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 25. Now some of those that were from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? It just goes on and on. And in the chapter that we were reading from for our scripture, We saw several verses in that passage that was read 
Regarding that too, verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And then in verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. And then finally over in chapter 11, verse 53, it seems like it ratcheted up another notch at this point because of what was happening. Jesus had just raised a man from the dead. And it's hard to ignore that. And they realized that they needed to do more than seek to kill him. They needed, as it says here, verse 53, from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Clearly, Jesus was living in a time where his freedom was restricted. Not only that, this person that he had raised from the dead, Lazarus, was also a target. Chapter 12, verse 10, the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death. Get rid of the evidence, perhaps there'll be less people believing in this man who thinks he is from God, the Messiah. What about Jesus' own disciples? Have you ever considered them in the light of religious liberty? Jesus had to pointedly rebuke them on two separate occasions. Once when they saw someone else casting out devils in Jesus' name and they, they actually forbid, forbade them from doing it. And Jesus says, don't do that. Do not forbid them. Because no one can speak lightly of me in my name. And then of all things, when the, when the children tried to, come, tried to come to Jesus, it says the disciples forbade them. Can you imagine? Restriction of religious access. Of all people, the children. And, and of all people... Blocking them would be the disciples of Jesus, keeping them from Jesus himself. What an amazing story. Jesus' own disciples had something to learn in terms of religious liberty. What about the future? Jesus clearly told his disciples, we're not going to take time to go there, but in Matthew 24, he told them that the future held for them persecution and even martyrdom. Of the 11 surviving disciples, how many of them died a natural death? Only John. And it wasn't because they didn't try to kill him. It was because of miraculous intervention on God's part that kept him alive. Probably for the purpose of giving him the revelation. The disciples, Christ said their freedom would be restricted and denied. You know, when you think about it, the time in which we live... And perhaps I should say also the place in which we live is unique in many ways. It's an oasis that as you study history and as you visit other parts of the world, you realize God had a special purpose for this time in this place. Do we realize that as we ought? What was the root causes of these abuses that we see in Jesus' day? and obviously that extend to our day. John 16. 
this amazing passage where John records in some three chapters Jesus' conversation with the disciples, mostly a monologue, between the Lord's Supper and the prayers in Gethsemane. Jesus again talking about what the future held for them and about the danger of their liberties being restricted. He says in 16 verses 2 and 3, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that, they, that he offers God service. He's doing the work of God. And these things they will do to you. Why? Because. Because why? They have not known the Father nor me. Is it really that simple that only those can persecute who don't know God? This man, Saul of Tarsus, thought he knew God. And he went about doing just what Jesus predicted would happen here. Perhaps Jesus saw Paul, at that time Saul, persecuting his own followers. But what is Jesus meaning here? That it has something to do with knowing Just like the disciples, in their own way, as we study the Gospels, did not grasp the kingdom. Even though they were preaching it, they didn't grasp it. So there would be those who would not know the king. The disciples had to go through a re-education, did they not? In fact, the re-education had been taking place for three and a half years as they walked with Jesus. But yet, the Lord's Supper, after he had given them the emblems of his broken body is spilt blood. What does Luke say there was among them? Strife as to who was the greatest. They didn't know the kingdom. In that sense, they were ready to do what Peter did later that evening, take out his sword and start swinging it. Um, Again, it's a matter of not knowing. But of all the passages, I think, in Scripture... The one that we had for our scripture reading, John 8, if you'll turn back there with me, is probably the most significant in describing the relationship between knowing and freedom. Let's look here in the verses that I have highlighted there for you. Starting a little earlier in the chapter, back there in verse 19 of John 8. One of the ways in which it really helps to understand the Gospels and to immerse yourself in the story, because the more you're able to do that, the better you're able to grasp what happened, is to realize that all through Jesus' life, probably the key issue that everyone struggled with um, at some level, to some degree, was who is this man? Perhaps we could say as a babe, who is this babe? Who is this child? Who is this boy? Who is this man, finally? Continual struggle of grasping the significance. Because he looked just like the rest of us. He was born, you know, there in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, trained in the carpenter shop, looked like one of the other poor people that had to work with their hands for a living, probably day to day. And yet, he says, I've come. From the Father. And you can imagine what it would be to try to, to wrap your mind around that. Who is he? 
He looks like this, but he says he's like this. And what evidences do we have for who he says he is? This is one of the verses where they're actually addressing that. Um, It's the issue of his father, because obviously his identity is wrapped up in his father. They said to him, where is your father? Jesus said, you know not, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Again, it's the issue of knowing. The issue of knowing. Verse 28. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, speaking about the future, and not the lifting up of exalting someone, as we have come here today corporately to do with God, to worship and praise him, but lift him up in the Roman sense on this tree. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know, then you will know that I am. Throughout John, Jesus uses this phrase, I am, I am, I am. Not insignificantly echoing the words that Moses heard there. When he asked, who do I say that sent me when I go back to Pharaoh? And and God said, tell him, I am has sent you. You will know that I am, that I do nothing of myself. Don't lose that phrase, that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things. Verse 32, and you shall know the truth. Again, something that we know. And again, in the Hebrew mind, knowing is not some mental uh, cognition that's going on here. It's an experiential thing that embraces the heart and the life totally. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This verse, I believe, touches the, the root of the freedom that we're talking about today, that we're trying to highlight as we attempt to unwrap it a little bit further. And then verse 55 Again, he says to the people that he's dialoguing with there, yet you have not known him, the Father, God. But I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. I don't believe we understand as we ought how Jesus said these things. Sometimes they can seem really pointed. Um but I think we need the nonverbal stuff that was going on, that somehow you don't record that easily just in written words. But as we learn who Jesus is, we can begin to hear how he would say these things. Um, not in a way at all to put people down, but actually to invite them to come up, to lift them up. Tears in his voice, we're told, he actually spoke with at times. So what is the importance of knowing the Father and the Son? How important is it? It's something about that, we're told, that frees us. That frees us. And I submit that that is the basis of the liberty that we need to know about. Verse 32, as we read, the truth shall make you free. And now there's two questions I'd like to ask about that verse. Frees you from what? And... What is the truth? Because Jesus is using this phrase very, very repeatedly, if you've noticed it in the verse, in the passages that we were reading there. The first question, what is the freedom from? 
Verses 33 and 34 in the, in the narrative that goes along, they respond, we're Abraham's children, we've never been in bondage. I'm not sure from what perspective they're thinking, because if they knew their history, there was 400 years in Egypt, right? They had been bond slaves of Pharaoh. And then between that time and, of course, the later years, they spent another 70 years in Babylon. You know, the king of Babylon hauled them away to, to Babylon. But Jesus ignored that history. He ignored the current political situation that they lived in right at the time. Because what nation was in charge then? Rome. He ignored all of that. And he got right to the heart of the matter. Because he said here in verse 34, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. What is the freedom from that he's talking about? It's freedom from sin. It means you can be free from living a way that you were not designed to live. It's very significant that in Romans 8, this converted persecutor, Paul, Saul who became Paul, he uses this very same verb, make you free, that Jesus uses here in John 8 to describe the act of being free. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul grasped the message. So the, the freedom that we're talking about is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. But not just somebody else's life and death. It will not just keep you from taking someone else's life in perhaps the ultimate expression of persecution. But it will also save your life. The truth then that Jesus is talking about, which is our second question, must somehow deal with the root difference between life and death. And I believe in John 8, verse 44, we have perhaps the most amazing verse on this question. What is the truth? Because in this verse, Jesus shines a bright light back into the distant past as he discusses or dialogues with these Jews as to what they were missing, what they needed, and what the consequences would be for him personally. He, after all, said, you're planning to kill me. And this is why he says in 44, you are of your father, the devil. And actually the word your is supplied, so if we want to translate it as it's written, you are of a father, the devil. The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks in the original has the definite article there. When he speaks the lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So two questions about this verse. We've just read it. What did the devil do with the truth? What does the verse say that he did with the truth? Did you catch it? It says he did not stand in the truth. There was a location where he was placed when he was created. After all, who was he? Isaiah 14 calls him the shining one. 
The translators use the word Lucifer, which means one who bears light. And where was he created to be? Right beside the Father, the covering cherub. He did not stay there. He did not stay there. So perhaps that helps us to understand in the beginning way what the truth is all about. Because when he didn't remain there, it says very plainly, at the end of the verse, he ended up fathering something. What did he father? He fathered, translations vary, but in the original, it's a singular pronoun. It. He's the father of it. And it refers back to the antecedent, which is when he speaks the lie. He speaks of his own, for he's the li- he is a liar and the father of it. Perhaps we need to then consider this in the light of what Jesus is saying about here in this passage. Back in verse 40, Jesus said that he had told the Jews the truth. Notice that? But where had Jesus gotten the truth? He says, which I heard from God. We also forget at times that Jesus was born like we're born. He was not pre-programmed. He did not come into this world knowing who he was, knowing his past. He had to learn that like we learn things. First from his mother before he could do anything other than just listen. Um, Hear the stories about his miraculous birth, I imagine, at some point. And then as he began to be exposed to scripture from scripture, finding out who he was. And learning from his father. Specifically in this verse, learning something that he called the truth. Receiving from the Father this truth. And it's in contrast in that verse, he said, to killing. In fact, it almost implies that because I'm telling you the truth, you want to kill me. What in the world would the truth be that it would cause a homicidal reaction? Anger to the degree of wanting to take your life. Verses 45 and 46, he says, Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. I would invite you just in your mind to go a few hours later in the record there in the Gospels where Jesus is hanging on the cross and they're saying to him, If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Come down off the cross and we, what? We will believe you. Put that verse with this verse. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth and you don't believe me. They're saying, save yourself and we will believe you. Could we begin to see that the truth was something that prevented Jesus from saving himself? Because he was here not to do that, but to save you and me. And the Jews wanted, they wanted a Messiah who would be into saving himself because then they could live for themselves. Perhaps we can see a little bit better how they got angry at him because his words, the truth, the truth about God, the truth about how we are designed to live as human beings, this truth they did not want to accept. They got insanely angry about it. What did Jesus tell Pilate, after all? When Pilate was struggling with the same question, 
Later there in John 18, we won't turn there, but Pilate's trying to figure out who this man is. He's been brought as a criminal. They say we want to kill him. We can't, don't have a right to kill him because only the Romans have the right of capital punishment, but he deserves to die. And he's looking at this man, and he doesn't look like a criminal. There's nothing on his countenance, on his face, that implies that he's a hardened man guilty of putting to death. And so Pilate's saying, uh, who are you? You know, your, your people have accused you to me. And Jesus says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight. I would not be delivered to the Jews. And then he says, oh, you are a king then. You are a king. And Jesus says very plainly, John 18, verse 37, for this cause was I born. For this cause I came into the world to do what? To bear witness to what? The truth. Jesus says, my mission on this earth is to bear witness to this thing called the truth that Lucifer did not stand in, that I've told you and you want to kill me, that if you know, you will be free from sin. What could it be? The keys, I believe, to the truth is found back there in John 8 as well. Verse 28 We looked at it already. I do nothing of myself. Verse 42. I I have not come of myself. And verse 50. I do not seek my own glory. Could the truth be that simple? Could it be that God himself and the universe that he created functions on this principle, the principle that we call self-sacrificing love. That that is the way things operate. That is the way life is. And that anything else is sin and death. I'd like to take you to the desire of ages. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to do what? To give. Let me pause there and just ask a simple question. What's the opposite of giving? Taking. Taking. What's What's the ultimate thing you can take? A life. So now we see why Jesus said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. We can see why they were wanting to take his life because they were wanting to live on this opposite principle. But then we can ask the question, what is the ultimate thing you can give? Your life. What was Jesus about to do? So the cross becomes an amazing event in which the truth and the lie stand face to face and in a sense join in this experience of Christ giving his life and in Lucifer instigating human beings, taking the life of the Son of God. Continuing the quote, she's quoting from John, notice this. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. Five, four passages from John, she's referencing there. In these words, the words that she's just quoted from Jesus, 
is set forth a great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to do what? He took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in a joyous, in, joyous, uh, in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence. This amazing picture of a giving God pouring out lavishing gifts on his creatures. And in his plan, they're coming through Christ. And in his plan, returning through Christ in praise and honor and worship, what we're doing here today in a corporate sense. And she says the circuit of beneficence is complete if we respond to his giving with giving. Representing, she says, the character of the great giver, the law of life. The law of life. Desire of Ages 21.2. So again, quickly moving ahead. The lie then must be the opposite. And Jesus put his finger out there in, in verse 44. He said, when Lucifer did not stay in the truth, he spoke of his own. He was on a trip, but it was not a trip, again, of light bearing. He was no longer reflecting the light of God's character. He had entered the realm of darkness because he was speaking of his own. He was the father of the lie. Other passages that speak about this opposite principle, John 7, 18, 8, 50, and then, of course, Isaiah 14, the classic passage in which Isaiah was shown what Lucifer was saying in his heart at that very beginning point. And I believe if we look at Isaiah 14 in that light, as he describes what his plan was to go up, to ascend, he comes to the end of the passage and he says, I will be like the Most High. I submit to you that is the lie. To say that God is like that. That began the reign of sin and darkness in this universe. Again, continuing the desire of ages, in heaven itself, this law was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. Therefore, he misrepresented God, attributing to him the desire for self-exaltation. With his own evil characteristics, he sought to invest the loving creator. Thus he deceived angels. Thus he deceived men. Thus he drew men to join him in rebellion against God. And the night of woe settled down upon the world. This is the result of believing the lie and not abiding in the truth. Just a couple of the passages I would point you to. Romans 1.25. Paul has a graphic passage there describing what happens when we, having received from God as creatures of his hand, innumerable evidences of who he is and what he's like, his divine power and Godhead. We continue and insist on living for ourselves. We end up, he says very pointedly, exchanging the truth of God for the lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. I submit to you that's the issue in Revelation at the end time. That's the issue that we're facing today over religious liberty. Who are we going to worship? And what principle is it based upon? Second Thessalonians 2, another amazing passage where Paul very clearly 
anchored in Daniel chapter 11 and other passages, allusions to Daniel, talks about the future for his day, in which there would be those who would not receive a love of the truth. It says very plainly they would believe the lie. A statement from education that shines a, a light on these two principles. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, and of the rise of the great controversy. In the light of what we're talking about today, the controversy between the truth and the lie. The work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy. What are the two principles? Continuing and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. If we don't see these two principles battling it out in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, we don't understand the prophecies as we ought. But it doesn't just reside in what we study in Scripture. Here it gets, gets very practical. Continuing the quote, he should see the student of the Bible. How this controversy enters into every phase of human experience. How in every act of life, he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And how, whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. Education 190. In every act of life, we're living according to one of those principles or the other. Living for God's purposes, putting others first, or we're living for ourselves. Living as Christ lived when he was here on earth, or living like the devil. Only as we know the truth of the selfless love the Father is, can we be free and grant freedom. For ourselves and for others, we'd be free from sin, free from condemnation, and eventually free from death which is the consequence of the first two. I submit this is the basis of religious freedom in Scripture. The freedom is not some absolute thing. This is what America has been seduced into believing. Freedom is not an absolute thing above God that allows one to do whatever they want forever. It's a, an expression of God's humility in drawing sinners back to him. Freedom is granted to sinners for them to learn his love and righteousness. And his faith and love has been expressed in Jesus Christ in many, many other ways. And it awaits a faith and love response, which cannot be forced. Cannot be forced. And so we turn to this division that we often talk about of liberties, both religious and civil. I believe a good way of looking at it is the two great commandments Christ gave in, in the Gospels. Religious liberty, love the Lord thy God. Civil, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the basis of both religious and civil liberty. Without those two principles, liberty is impossible. As Christ said in another place, religious, render unto God the things that are God's. Civil, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar was not a godly ruler. You may recall from world history. But yet, Civil liberty is based on that other-centered principle. These two expressions flowing from truth about God are what energized the apostolic church. I believe the apostles 
finally learned not to argue among themselves who was the greatest, but to actually feel that the others were the greatest. Their fellow apostles were the greatest. And therefore, when Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face in Antioch, Peter didn't take out a sword again. He must have humbled himself and he said, Paul, you're right. I have been living a lie. I've been living the lie. This apostolic church were persecuted, but they did not persecute. In the great apostasy of the Middle Ages, these expressions of self-sacrificing love were confounded by the exaltation of man above God and of man above man. Those two great commandments were, were attacked from within the Christian church itself. 2 Thessalonians 2 references that. In the recovery of these liberties, the genius of the Reformation found its strength as faith was placed back in sola scriptura, in the word of God, purged of human traditions. And the American experiment has been unique because the flow of, in the flow of events from the Reformation, we have seen the value of these two great liberties in this country and in this place to an unprecedented extent. That's the heritage that we have. Just to give you an understanding briefly of perhaps something that you're not aware of, one of our founding fathers by the name of John Adams became one of our early presidents some ten years before the Declaration of Independence. As an attorney, he was writing an essay on the history of ecclesiastical and civil despotism. Despotism is the opposite of freedom. Okay? For a group called the Sodality, it was a private club of Boston lawyers. Adams' purpose was to contrast the tyranny of the canon and feudal law, those laws that came from the Middle Ages, against the New England's, uh, the, the struggle in New England, their heroic struggle for freedom. Adams decided to expand and published his dissertation on the canon and feudal law, and I'd like to just show you some, of, some brief thoughts from that amazing document. Quoting now John Adams, since the promulgation of Christianity, the two greatest systems of tyranny that have sprung from this original are the canon and the feudal law. Adams called the canon law the most refined, sublime, extensive, and astonishing constitution of policy that ever was conceived by the mind of man. It was framed by the Romish clergy for the aggrandizement of their own order. I would interject here something that historically you need to be aware of too. That is that Pius XII's life goal, the Pope who was Pope during World War II, his life goal was to systematize this code of canon law. Continuing John Adams, Thus was human nature chained fast for ages in a cruel, shameful, and deplorable servitude to him and his subordinate tyrants, who it was foretold would exalt himself above all that was called God and that was worshipped. John Adams is referencing Second Thessalonians 2, historically. Continuing Adams, the feudal law, in contradistinction to the canon law, was originally a code of laws for a vast army in a perpetual encampment. In this manner, the common people were held together in herds and clans in a state of servile dependence on their lords, bound even by the tenure of their lands to follow them, the lords, wherever they commanded, to their wars 
and in a state of total ignorance of everything divine and human, excepting the use of arms and the culture of their lands. But Adams continued, Another event still more calamitous to human liberty was a wicked confederacy between the two systems of tyranny above described. It's one thing to have canon law lording it over you. It's another thing to have feudal law lording over you. But when they join together in the union of church and state, you have something that was even more calamitous to human liberty. As Adam said, thus as long as this confederacy lasted and the people were held in ignorance, liberty and with her knowledge and virtue too seemed to have deserted the earth and one age of darkness succeeded another. Uh, Till God in his benign providence raised up the champions who began and conducted the Reformation. It was this great struggle that peopled America. It was not religion alone, as is commonly supposed, but it was a love of universal liberty and a hatred, a dread, a horror of the infernal confederacy before described, canon law and feudal law together, that projected, conducted, and accomplishment the settlement, accomplished the settlement of America. Do we know our history as we ought? These men lived it, and they knew the recent history of Europe. Continuing Adams, after their arrival here, they formed their, their plan, both of ecclesiastical and civil government, in direct opposition to the canon and the feudal systems. Their greatest concern seems to have been to establish a government of the church more consistent with scriptures and a government of the state more agreeable to the dignity of human nature than any they had seen in Europe and to transmit such a government down to their posterity with the means of securing it and preserving it forever. How well have we done it? How well have we done it? Adams wrote of the importance of schools to teach the principles of liberty based on history and of a free and active press to hold people in power accountable, to shine a bright light on things they would want to hide. He called on the churches, and perhaps we can hope we're doing today what he called us to do. Let the pulpit resound with the doctrines and sentiments of religious liberty. Adam's document is available uh, in PDF form if you would like to jot down the reference, scripturefirst.net slash adams underscore 0282.pdf. It's an amazing document. It's not a short one, but it's well worth reading. What about Seventh-day Adventists? I think we need to see that we rose the century after American independence. We need to see our, our movement in that light. That as God was bringing this power of tyranny to its knees in Europe and was raising a country that was free in the new world, he was also raising in that country a movement which would carry the last messages of mercy to a world, which would proclaim religious freedom in a way that his followers, the Christians themselves, had never fully grasped. And so I decided recently just to look up the phrase religious liberty on the new CD-ROM that's come out, the CD-ROM that has a cover that looks like that, Comprehensive Research Edition. And I submit these, these figures just as an illustration of our heritage as Adventists, because these are writings of, of people who are long dead. 
by and large, everybody on the CD are no longer around. And how often was this phrase used? And I'm not trying to compare author to author because religious liberty as an Adventist expression actually became more significant some 40 years or so after the movement began because it was at that time there were multiple attempts to pass a national Sunday law. And we began to understand a little bit more of the significance of it. So John, John Andrews, I found four, four times he used it. G.I. Butler, one time. Not all of these authors, all of their writings are on the CD. So you, again, I'm not comparing author to author. S.N. Haskell used it seven times. A.T. Jones used it 479 times. He was obviously a champion of religious liberty. Um, the early Liberty magazine called the American Sentinel, he edited. Jan Lefboe used it eight times. Percy McGann, um, spent many years at Linda Linda, used it twice in one of the books we published, uh, put in there by him. Prescott, W.W. Prescott, four times. Uriah Smith, 33 times. E.J. Wagner, 173 times. J.H. Wagner, E.J.'s father, three times. Ellen White, 193 times. In Joshua Heim, Signs of the Times from 1840 to 45, this was the Millerite movement. It's used eight times. The Advent Review, the first 27 volumes from 1850 to 1866, it's used 33 times. The General Conference Bulletins from 87 to 1913, 845 times. This has been a major theme in the deliberations of our church in the early years of its business sessions. Manuscripts and Memories of Minneapolis, 16 times. So we have a heritage as Adventists that we need to grasp better. We've been at the forefront in many ways of religious liberty in this country, attempting to preserve those freedoms for which our founding fathers gave their lives that John Adams wrote about. But in thinking of history in general, it's a marvel that we have as much peace and tolerance in our time as we've had. Just read the stories of other countries. The bloodbaths that are there. We've had our own civil war, but that's been an aberration in our long history. And unfortunately, we have uh, exported war at sometimes to other countries, but in our own land here, amazing. But this is my conviction today. As liberty has been transformed into license and greed has triumphed, the foundations of our freedoms have been destroyed. America has, be has come to believe the lie. That freedom is to live for yourself, to do your own thing, and to have freedom to do that. On the near horizon, I believe, is trouble of such a magnitude that those who still, on, who still insist on the lie, they'll see how bad it really is. And they will demand solutions that will again exalt man above God and man above man in the laws that they attempt to pass. We're seeing articles like the, uh, like these with these titles, getting prepared for the great collapse. And after the financial crisis, civil war, get ready to leave your region. These were titles a year ago when I was looking up some of these articles. But our mission as Adventists, I believe, is to proclaim clearly the importance of the truth about our God, the basis of religious liberty, the principles of his kingdom that will last forever. And so we're going to have an amazing opportunity in the days that are ahead to witness to God's faith and love in the midst of, of very trying times. And the question is, are we ready? Do we know our history? Do we know the fact that this country was founded on these principles that were the fruit of the American uh, Revolution and the Protestant Reformation? Resources for us are available. 
Revelation 7, after all, pictures that the angels are doing what? They're holding back. There are forces at work that I'm convinced, if the angels had not been doing their work, we would not be sitting here today in freedom, able to worship God according to our conscience. And what's determining when the winds are released? It's the readiness of God's people. It's the readiness of God's people there in the ceiling uh, that's pictured there in Revelation. And I believe there are some simple spiritual dynamics behind the trends. But that, let me just say this, the readiness that we need is simple. It means to understand what the truth is, to, to know it, that's become part of our life. We've embraced it. We've learned to conduct our lives like God conducts the universe. And we're willing to give rather than to take. And we're willing to give to the point of giving our lives. That doesn't come overnight. That's something that, that the Lord teaches us step by step, day by day, in the little things of life. I wrote a, an article on this, if you'd like to look it up. A matter of confidence, salvation through God's eyes. The best way to find it at this point is just to go and Google my name and then the phrase, a matter of confidence, and you'll find it. It's in a, a periodical called New England Pastor, published back in New England. What resources are available to us as Adventists? Some other web pages. ReligiousLiberty.info is the North American Religious Liberty Association. Tremendous organization that each one of you should be a member of. NARLA, for short. Another uh, website, ChurchState.org. This is our own Pacific Union Religious Liberty website. Encourage you to be familiar with that. There's uh, actually podcasts that you can subscribe to and listen to. Programs. And then, of course, our libertymagazine.org, the successor to the American Sentinel that was started back there under uh, A.T. Jones in the 18, 1890s, libertymagazine.org. So my appeal in closing from Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Remember, the truth shall set you free from that sin. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the ultimate expression of the truth, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our closing hymn is number 303, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Jesus.